Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Seth Stevenson, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Bromance as Bloodsport edition. It's Wednesday, September 13th, 2017, and on today's show, we'll be talking about Bachelor in Paradise, ABC's long-running, or sort of long-running, romance show, which this season was hit with sexual assault allegations. The trip to Spain, uh, the third in a series um, starring Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, a pair of British comedians who eat food and one-up each other with impressions. And The Deuce, David Simon's new HBO show. Steve, Julia, and Dana are all headed to Toronto as we're recording. So today I am joined by Slate's feature director, features That's director, not there. just one feature. <laughs> no, please, a, multiple. A slew of At features. At least two. Laura yeah. Bennett. Hi, Laura. Hi, Seth. And Slate senior editor and host of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Gabriel Roth. Hello, Gabe. Hey, Seth. Okay, let's get into what is perhaps our newsiest segment, Bachelor in Paradise. So this ABC show takes a bunch of extremely attractive young people, throws them together uh, on a beach in Mexico this year, unexpectedly, or maybe not unexpectedly, if you've watched the show for a while, a couple of people got too drunk. And and perhaps may or may not have done something which could be characterized as sexual assault. Before we get too far into this, Laura Bennett, I'm going to ask you, as I feel you have probably watched the most hours of Bachelor, Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise. Can you explain a little bit about the concept of Bachelor in Paradise versus The Bachelor versus The Bachelorette? Uh, Why, yes, I can, Seth. So The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise all share identical DNA. And so this, the differences are really sort of uh, structural. The Bachelor in Paradise, as you just said, it's pretty straightforward. It takes a lot of shapely, uh, insecure 20 and 30-somethings. It it sort of um, sequesters them on this very boring beach in a corner of Mexico, untouched by human hands. With like a couple of day beds and a bar. <laughs> With a couple of day beds, it. a bar, and a bartender who's sort of like a to- tokenistic Mexican character who's sort of like grossly mistreated by the show overall. Uh, and I guess the most genius stroke of this terrible show is the pacing of it, the way it introduces new characters just at the right moments. So I don't know how many episodes of you of the show you guys have watched, but it starts out with a slew of uh, of young people and it makes them compete to partner off. So there's this element of I did not prepare a, a treatise on the substance of Bachelor in Paradise, but it makes them compete to partner off. And so it's not just about who's falling in love with who and who's vibing on who. It's how can you strategize your way to not be left out of a partnership? And so thus people will come up and be like, can I steal you for a second it, right. and take someone away down the beach to talk to them? And unlike in, in, in The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, it's one bachelor or a bachelorette and right. 30 like 30 people competing for their love right exactly. here it's a even even number of gals and guys a very heteronormative show right. very, even number exactly. of gals and guys and and they can sort of 
have multiple things going on at once and then ultimately decide which person they want to. Right. And at the end of every episode, there's a ceremony where either the women or the men have the power that week and they get to choose their partner and whoever doesn't get chosen has to go home. It's a devastating spectacle. And it is just completely irresistible. Although, as with every installation in the Bachelor franchise, it is like at least 47 minutes too long every time. Well, the, the one other thing we should say about, about Bachelor in Paradise before we get to the stuff, the substance of, of that makes this worth talking about at all. <laughs> it gives a very, very high brow Yeah. Well, the one other thing we should say about it is that the, the people who are cast on the show are people who have been contestants on one or another season yes. of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Uh-huh. So these are people who have already are known to the audience, uh-huh. are known in some way to the other contestants exactly, who have already established their persona. So at the first episode, you don't what you don't have to do is any of the sort of character building work. You don't have to say, this is the good girl and this is the tough guy and this is the moron. You already know who the people are and now we're putting them in a Petri dish and letting them mix it up. That's learning- exactly right. I want to hear what Seth is going to... I'm very eager for all Seth's thoughts about the show, but the thing that Gabe says, that's very true, And but the thing is they do the character building in this kind of meta way. They they sort of take it for granted, and then they still lean on it, but wryly. And so you have this opening credit sequence where they have the girl strangling a producer, and she's the tough, scrappy one. And then you have someone throwing a ball around, and he's the sporty guy. Like, they just sort of... Yeah, the, the whole Bachelor franchise has become, I think, increasingly camp over yes, the past 20 true. years. <laughs> And Bachelor in Paradise is the moment when the camp becomes self-aware, right? It's the moment when it turns from what's the matter with Baby Jane into the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Although the Bachelor and Bachelorette are very self-aware, too. Uh, They've now become, yes, sure. Yeah, but this is the one, and I've got my, so I, I should reveal that anything smart I'm going to say about this is coming from my sister, who is the commissioner for Bachelor Fantasy League <laughs> and two-time champion of her Bachelor Fantasy League. She's and a scholar. So I know it firsthand. Where is, she is indeed like the most credentialed Bachelor an- analyst there could be. So the 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 Bachelor and the Bachelorette, there is this pomp, though, and there is this idea that it's serious. And, and, and in Bachelor in Paradise, they kind of throw that away and they're willing to make fun of themselves openly. And, and, that, and that opening credit sequence right. is where it gets very campy. Um, but, you know, you talked about how they, they've already developed the characters. I hope that's true because we learn absolutely nothing about them. Like the conversations <laughs> yeah. are just like that's they true. touch their hair a lot as they <laughs> talk to each other and they talk about how hot they are and how hot other people are. And which person they want to get with. And there's no, even like at one point, someone was like, started to talk about how they were an orphan. And I was like, oh, we're going to, maybe we're going <laughs> right. to like get a little deep here. From like Chernobyl. Yeah. Like it was really dark. But after story. two sentences, it cut off and it was <laughs> just about like who was going to sleep with who. And that was that. I, well, I wonder, I mean, we should talk about like sexual assault allegations, but I this was such a chore for me to watch, Laura. I'm sorry oh to say that. Oh my God. We are cut from different cloths, says Stephen. I was trying to imagine an alternate universe in which the people they choose, instead of being like these very attractive lunkheads, are people of actual in- with actual interests who can talk about things. And maybe like That'd the be setting. That's a terrible show. It's like 30 like attractive but smart and interesting people like on the research floor of the Library of Congress pairing off at like a little wooden table and talking about, you know, books they've read recently. But maybe that's not the kind of TV I most I can't people... wait for Bravo to hire you after listening to this podcast. So... You're a real whiz. <laughs> so, so, so the reason we're talking about this show, uh, which otherwise might not cross the bar, is because very early in this season, in, f- in fact, after the f- uh, during the taping of the first episode, I think, um, a couple of the, the cast members, I was about to say characters, but these are real people, um, paired off um, somewhat drunkenly in the pool, and a producer of the show brought to the attention of other producers the fact that perhaps something untoward had happened, perhaps something that qualified as sexual assault had happened. Uh, yes. Well, you just, you just summarized it pretty well. I mean, that's pretty much all, all there is. There was this cloud of controversy surrounding the show, uh, about, I mean, and the, and the fact that it was cloudy was sort of something that the show really was able to exploit because they could sort of distill it and compartmentalize it into the narrative of their choosing, which we saw them do very effectively over the course of the episodes we watched. But, uh, yeah, the idea was that there was some kind of, Someone saw something. I think it was actually the producer saw a video of the encounter that had happened in the pool between Corinne and Demario, who are these two extraordinarily drunk and, uh, you know, fundamentally preposterous human beings. And they and then uh, the show had to shut down. The show so shut the down. shutdown became the stuff of lore within the universe of the show itself. 
Uh, the show, set to foreboding music, the shutdown. And the and show was, wasn't airing yet. It, it, sh- it shut down production. Warner Brothers held an internal investigation of what had happened. Right. Exonerated itself. Decided mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. bad had happened. Right. In the meantime, Corinne, the woman, had issued a statement through a lawyer in which she called herself a victim mm-hmm. and said that something, quote, bad must have happened. DeMario, the other, the, the guy involved, also issued a statement through a lawyer. Right. But then the show, at some point, after the exonerating investigation, resumed production with an episode in which they gathered the cast together, all like sitting on pillows, and the host, Chris Harrison, asked them about their opinions on consent and sexual assault. Right. Yeah, we should say that uh, DeMario and Corinne, the two people involved, were not brought back. They no. weren't part of the cast going forward after the right, shutdown. Right, but they were brought back to sit on the couch and yes, be sort of investigated. They then, they then come back and, and each of them is interviewed. And this whole, the, the narrative of there was this event, then there was the shutdown, becomes the story of this season. And right. the playing out of, of that event is like the, the cloud hanging over the narrative right. arc. Uh, and the thing, I mean, mentioning the producer, I think, is key because... That was a thing that just dumbfounded me watching this. It's that the producer is the missing piece in all this. Someone saw the producer who worked on the show saw a thing and made a thing. Think about it. You know, they was obviously not pulled out of thin air. I mean, this this season pretty persuasively manages to convince you. At least it convinced me that like, did something criminal happen? I don't really think so. But I also think that watching the show deal with what happened was sick. Yeah. It was really sick. And fascinating. It, I mean, and it, it, fascinating. It's, it, we should say up front that Corinne, when she comes on to tell her story, she describes being very drunk and on medication. Right. Uh, she, she describes being, she says, the way I was, you would not have known there was anything wrong with me, but I don't remember any of right. it and I wasn't in That's control of my actions. That's right. a blackout. And and she says, I don't think DeMario did anything wrong. She said he couldn't have known and he didn't do anything wrong. And she says basically it was, that she would have given the appearance of consent. On the other hand, as Laura says, some producer watching this did not see the appearance of consent. Some producer saw something else going wrong. But what we have is a, 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 a rape accusation or a sexual assault accusation, I should say, uh, with no accuser. Right. right. The producer yeah. isn't there. Corinne isn't making any accusations. So what we have is this very weird story. There's this thing that that's very, very unusual. There's this thing that very rarely happens in the world, which is a false accusation of sexual assault. It happens occasionally, but not very often. Right. We as a society are so fascinated by that thing. When that thing happens, we really want to know about it. We want to tell stories about it. We want to talk about it. We want to find out all about it. The Bachelor franchise lucked into one of those, and it is milking it for all it's oh, worth. God. And it it, it 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 can play it much more straightforwardly, with much more sort of much more smoothly, because there's no accuser, because the producer yep. who saw the thing is not named, is not on the air, and doesn't they don't give bring their the side. Producer yeah. back. You don't see episode. the. You don't, don't hear, hear from, from them. At you all. don't hear from the producer. You don't see the tape that the producer was watching. All you hear is the testimony of the two people involved, both of whom say this is not what was happening. Exactly, and it is framed so cleanly as a case of simple misunderstanding this he said she said that can be catheterically resolved with some on-air soul bearing and it never never mind that one half of the he said she had has a literal black hole in her memory it's just they it's so expertly and terrifyingly manipulated well so emily yaffe former dear pretty at slate now at the atlantic has been doing a series of articles at the atlantic about campus sexual assault allegations and how whether or not universities are equipped to to adjudicate these things or whether it's something that they just aren't able to handle or need to handle better. And it, this very much reminded me of this. This was like a freshman dorm situation, right? These are a bunch of young people thrown together, spending all day together, drinking too much. Um, and then there's this thing that happens that's in a gray area. Somebody may not be uh, conscious enough to consent. Someone else sees it. And, there, and one of the stories that Emily Yaffe mentions in her Atlantic article is this thing where the roommate in the room sees her sees her roommate, you know, engaged in some sort of sexual activity with someone and decides that her roommate shouldn't shouldn't be doing that, isn't capable of doing that and reports it. And now the machinery of the university begins. And that's sort of what happened here where the machinery of Warner Brothers, the machinery of TMZ and um, you know, these like these bachelor obsessed media outlets um, started up. And the bachelor wasn't really equipped to adjudicate this. The way they did it is to gather everyone together, sit them on pillows and talk about it. They did not a I feel like a not 
awful job of discussing the the sides of this. They even asked, you know, was race, was race a factor in this? Because Ugh, Demario I hated is how they did black. That. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I, but they but they did raise the question. They asked, "Can you can you give consent if you're drunk?" The answer was yes from one of the cast members, which may not be the answer that like a campus activist would give. Right. But they, I, it, it was funny to watch this play out in a in a very different universe than than a, a, an educational institution where they asked a lot of the same questions, but a lot of the answers and the way it was framed was completely different. Right. Well, it's because the purpose of the whole process is different, right? In the university, the purpose is adjudication. As you say, it might do that process well, it might do it badly, but the university is trying to adjudicate the case. What the bachelor machinery is trying to do is generate narrative. And it did that incredibly successfully. It got a ton of narrative energy out of this ambiguity and out of this. And the unbelievable on the race thing, the canniness of this show is impossible to overstate. And specifically, they they way they use this sort of cardboard idea of social issues as a way to stir up buzz. And I think in these shows we saw first just so honestly, I've never seen I've been watching the show for a long time and I was astounded by its clenched teeth commitment to its own mythology over the course of these over the course of these episodes the way they play the sound bites from the different media outlets they build the buzz into the show they hold it up almost as a badge of its cultural relevance rather than something really to negotiate and you see the sort of the, the way they use social issues and I use that I'm using air quotes right now but you can't see it because I'm doing it with my hands which because that's something that Chris Harrison has said Everything from sexual assault to racism is something they lump into that category. And you see it in the way they promoted the first black bachelorette. It's they flaunt this stuff as flashy, topical window dressing for the same old reality TV formulas. And they never would actually negotiate it. They just they want they crave it. And it's kind of hideous if you really think about it. But then the reason that they're constantly, as they're talking about these social issues, the reason that the phrase that they're using, as you said, is the shutdown is because what's actually at stake is not what happened between these two people, right? What's at stake is the show itself and the production of Bachelor in Paradise. Money generating thing. And it's not just Warner Brothers and Chris Harrison. It's the cast. Like these people build entire careers off being on these shows. So they need the show to go on. And it's so weird seeing the narrative formula that this franchise usually applies to like someone breaking a toe and going to the hospital applied to something as intractable as this. Like you see flashes of someone on a stretcher before a commercial break, or you see certain segments at the foreboding music. You hear, find out what happened to force a shutdown, the cliffhangers. But he replied to an inconclusive case of sexual assault where a woman blacked out after combining alcohol and prescription meds. Like the, the, the tropes are so wired in and the whole thing feels so familiar to anyone who's been watching this and yet you have to keep sort of jolting yourself to remember what's at the other end. My, my takeaway from this, once again, is that reality television is probably the worst thing ever created by humans and that the way that they build quote unquote reality in in romance and love and engagement where people are together for three weeks and then get engaged and it and that's like the mission right. of the show. And they showed a wedding insanity. just to convince just to remind us. They showed that we- they aired a wedding on the season just to remind us how wholesome the show is. And reality that's TV. that. Yeah, reality TV responsible for both <laughs> responsible uh, mis- misleading for, portrayal of yeah. sexual allegations and for our president. <laughs> If you have your own thoughts about how Bachelor in Paradise handled this or about reality television in general, come to our Facebook page and share them in the comments. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Laura, do we have any business to get to? Uh, Well, for our plus segment this episode, we're going to be talking about the ending of Trip to Spain, which is kind of a, uh, I guess you could call it a twist ending. It's certainly a shocking development. And so we're going to, since it's a little spoily, we're going to unpack it in our Slate Plus segment. And if you'd like to hear that segment and you maybe want to subscribe to Slate Plus, visit us at slate.com slash culture plus. Back to you, Seth. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, now for topic two, The Trip to Spain. This is the third in a series of three films starring British comedian Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, who, while playing themselves, basically drive around various countrysides, eat lunch with each other, one-up each other doing impressions of other celebrities, and then, just when you least expect it, some sort of solemn life moment happens. 
why don't we listen to a clip that combines both um, sort of like quick superficial discussion of their personal lives with uh, a sort of dueling impression. And in this case, the impression is of Mick Jagger. I have yeah. a young family. For a man of my age, my kids are young. Yeah. Yeah. How old's your wife? 43. You just got those kids in, squeeze them in quick then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going the full Mick Jagger and having them at... He's having another one at 72. Wow, uh, that's tough, isn't it? Have I met him? I have. I was at a party. Yeah. I was leaving. Yeah. And I heard from the uh, balcony... Yeah. Rob, Rob. 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 Hey, hey Rob. Rob. I look, well, he didn't, do, he didn't do the full, but... No. And I looked up and he went, don't throw those bloody spears at me. I said, what? He goes, don't throw those bloody spears at me. Yeah. No, no, no. He was doing Michael Caine. I know, I know. What you find is that he speaks like, sometimes it's sort, of, it's sort of like that, sort of, but it's actually quite posh. And sometimes he's quite sort of, uh, you can see that it's quite actually, you've got that sort of public school thing going on, you know, and you know, you've got something deep like that. But, um, but uh, and, uh, and, you know, you've got the old sort of, um, the sort of peacock thing, you know. Sorry. 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 He went... Don't throw those bloody spears at me. And I went, oh, it might have yeah, yeah. So I looked up at him and I said, I've told you before, if you're not going to sing, I don't want to bloody know. Now get back in the other room. And he went, ah! And off he went. He loved it. But I'm had at, I had uh, a close conversation with him, I would have said, what are you doing having a child at 72? It's worth noting that the, actually the best part of Steve Coogan's impression is, is visual in that yeah. it's like the jutting neck tendons <laughs> and like the, the shoulder angling uh, and, and the clapping next to the side of the head might be the best part of that impression. So I will confess, I was a big fan of the first two trips, um, uh, but I, I did not love the third trip. Wow. I know you that you, you in fact, watched the trip in the original format, right which is as a British television series. It's hard for me, I think, to make these movies. They cut like an hour out which is crazy to me because there's so much these are like gossamer things where there's so much shots of just people preparing food or driving through countrysides and then there's these like quick conversations i can't imagine another hour of this but maybe there's i also find that the way the movie works it's like cumulative like you sit in its in its you bathe in it and it sort of is cumulative and 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 becomes funnier and funnier if it were just stopping every 24 minutes i I don't know it would work as well for me but how, how is it different consuming it that way the trip series, which are, are directed by the the great British filmmaker Michael Winterbottom, each one is made as a, as a British television series of six episodes, of half an hour each, and then they're they're cut down into movies for the American market. So so serious uh, trip heads, uh, among which group <laughs> I consider myself, um, are, are, are going to want the, the the complete package, which is the the full uh, three hour long television series rather than um, what you're getting in the American cinemas, which is a bit more than half of that. Um, you know, e- each one of them, like the location changes. This time they're in Spain, the Spanish countryside. Oh, it's very beautiful. It's nice to watch. They all have the pleasures of great sort of landscape photography and cinematography and, and driving around. But in a way, they're all of a piece, right? They're all these two men playing themselves, uh, performing this ongoing double act, which consists of doing impersonations, discussing the technicalities of the impersonations. <laughs> and in the context of that, competing with one another to to undercut and to best one another. Uh, somebody described this, in, David Sims, who's a good critic in The Atlantic, called it a gentle, relaxing delight and a perfect piece of British comedy comfort food. And that stuck out to me because that seems exactly wrong. Same. That's exactly what it isn't. It's blood sport. What you're seeing are two very, very talented, very, very insecure men trying to to defeat one another on the field of combat. And even at the funniest moments, there is a constant suspense, an underlying suspense about when will one of them change the dynamic in order to upset the other one. And and uh, it, it it's fascinating and funny, but it's also extremely unsettling. And that's the particular pleasure that I get from it. And I wouldn't want to miss even a minute of it. And that's why I insist on watching the full three-hour British television version. I was just nodding vigorously through all of that. Bloodsport is a very good way to frame it. Uh, but wait, how is the experience of watching it in 30-minute increments different from sitting there and luxuriating in an hour of 
of the Tuscan countryside. I usually watch them two at a time. But yeah, I could imagine that uh, it would sort of build on itself in an interesting way if you watched the whole thing cumulatively. I find it does because the jokes get funnier as they're repeated. There's a lot of repetition. I mean, it's the Michael Caine impression over and over. And it's like there's like six or seven impressions that they do over and over and over again. And to me, they get a little bit funnier each time because then, as you heard in that clip, he's doing Mick Jagger doing Michael Caine. <laughs> like they do impressions of people doing impressions of other people. Um, and it gets funnier. But this... It it is a somewhat damning portrait of male camaraderie. Like you imagine if two women on a trip together talking about their lives and enjoying the countryside might feel different. This is it at every stage, like Steve Coogan's like pompous insecurity leads him to demand the bigger room in the hotel or the bigger <laughs> room on the cruise ship. Um, he has to, you know, talk about his Oscar nominations anytime Rob Brydon mentions anything going on in his career. And that it's funny because the, you know, the, they're playing themselves, but they're not themselves. They're like the, Steve, Steve Coogan has a son here who he doesn't have in real life who's played by an actor Rob Brydon cheats on his wife in in the trip to Italy which did not actually or at least as far as we know did not actually happen and he mentions it as what you know people would express sympathy to his wife in real life for ha- for having been cheated on when that did not act that was just in the movie um so there it's this strange it's uh, Steve Coogan is very willing to make himself look like a complete like puffed up jerk yeah Although, that's right I will say that it is a, I found it to be a bit of a bummer to read about these guys in real life and learn the extent to which they are these characters. I don't think that there's much distance at all. But I but but like Coogan really is that guy, but he thinks he's not in real life. And that's the biggest bummer. Like he'll say things in this Guardian profile of the two of them. He'll say things like, oh, I'm I'm much more satisfied in my career. I love playing Alan Partridge. But even the fact that he has to defend himself in that microscopic way uh, made me realize just how made me appreciate the sort of the authenticity of these portrayals even more. And I, as someone who, unlike Gabe, is not a British comedy completist, and I, I was more obviously, like most of the American public, more familiar with Coogan than Bryden going into this, but not supremely familiar with either of them. The character building over the course of an hour and of a movie in each of these cases is just so subtle and good. And the way the, the sort of the little shifts in their power dynamic and the way they minutely shiv each other's egos and the way the landscape of their rivalry and their deep mutual understanding is charted over the course of these really repetitive conversations. It's like a magic trick. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I think another way of saying a more positive frame on what you said about Steve Coogan actually being that <laughs> asshole yeah. is that um, there, there, there's a tremendous sort of artistic bravery in taking the most dislikable, <laughs> the most loathsome aspects of your personality and exaggerating them and putting them on screen in this very dramatically effective and, and comedically effective way. Um, right. It's Steve Coogan being a pretentious one-upping jerk, but it's also Rob Brydon sort of very deftly observing and and deploying Uh the strategy of self-deprecation, which is also a sort of male competitive tactic. The thing of like, oh, yes, no, I'm comfortable being the loser. When they get into Uh a riff, Uh he quite often foregrounds his own uh, lower status or his own lower success and and as if sort of almost boastful about how comfortable he is with that. It's all very strategic and it's all, I think, an acutely observed portrait of varieties of male behavior. It's also a horror story about sitting across the table from someone who sees your vulnerabilities so vividly and makes a game out of targeting them. You know, I'm only familiar with Rob Brydon from these movies. I, I gather he is a celebrity in Britain and he's well known. And he, he mentions these properties like Marion and Jeff that I've never there apparently shows on British TV. I've never heard of. But he doesn't he does an excellent job of portraying himself as the, he's almost like an obsessed. He has like a compulsive disorder and that he cannot be himself. He cannot speak as himself. He has to do an impression to convey anything. And the way that these movies, these movies are such a singular creation. Like, I'm not sure what to compare them to. I was, they're, they're kind of like Seinfeld's comedians in cars getting coffee, but they're, they're like, they're not at all because they suddenly will inject these deep life moments or these moments of intense loneliness or um, despair. Also, um, comedians in cars getting coffee is a story about one man's supreme airtight confidence diminishing the person across the table and that's not the dynamic at all in the trip no it's like my dinner with andre if like all they talked about was michael Caine impressions (laughs) um i felt the first two films did a better job of injecting that 
that melon that element of melancholy. Um, and it is it was it's very British the way they do. I feel like the catastrophe the show the Amazon show does which is sort of British does that too. In that it'll be silly, 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 and then there'll be this just stab of despair that comes in, and it's almost tangential, but it's the it's the thing the show hangs around. And I feel like the first two episodes of the trip did that as well, where they're just bantering along, bantering along, doing their impression of Hugh Grant, and then it's Steve Coogan alone in the middle of the night, you know, wondering if he's ever going to find happiness, and uh, and. And, and this episode, they, I feel, I felt they lost the thread on that a little bit. There's huh. a, there's a, uh, each of the movies and, and, and this one too has a sort of subplot, which is to do with someone's anxieties about their career. And this one, it's Steve Coogan is trying to get a screenplay made. And, and so each episode has a little moment of him talking to his agent who gets replaced, who, who moves on to another agency and is replaced by the agent's former assistant. And it, there, there's these little moments in which he's professionally humiliated, uh, which then he, you can feel him bringing that humiliation to his next encounter with his perennial victim, <laughs> Rob Bryden. Um, I, that worked for me. I thought that was... Um, there's a, there's another thing that Coogan likes to do, which is the first movie that that he and Bryden made with Michael Winterbottom is a, an, a strange adaptation of Tristram Shandy, um, the, the Lawrence Stern novel, which is a fantastic movie. And there's a moment in that where Steve Coogan says to the person directing the film within the film, let's have a shot of me holding, my character holding a baby because... I can do. I can say all of these cruel things, but if we show me holding a baby, then the audience will be sympathetic to me. And then later in the film, we get to see Steve Coogan holding a baby, and it's a sympathetic moment, and it works, even though we know how it's supposed to work on us. I think in a similar way, there's his relationship with his son in this one, where the son has gotten his girlfriend pregnant, and Coogan is startled and at first upset, but then becomes a very understanding and sympathetic father. He makes sure to include the moment of him metaphorically holding the baby. Right. You know, I read somewhere that some critic raving about this movie saying that Bryden and Kukin shtick is magically immune to diminishing returns. I do not agree with that. I think it absolutely <laughs> diminishes. But I do love how in this particular installation, an awareness of the repetitiveness and ridiculousness of the exercises are built into the movie. Like the way they, I love how fast it dispatched the exposition in scene one with the single with Bryden getting the call from Coogan saying, do you want to go on another one of these trips? And he just looks at his baby and the baby cries and he says, yeah, definitely. And he just goes and that's it. Little motifs like the editor showing up every time, which strikes me as absurd and hilarious and the sort of Easter egg quality to identifying all their different recurring impressions, which they often don't, uh, Advertise. They don't tell you who they are. And if you're not, if you're not familiar with like, like who's this is Roger Morgan? Yeah. I didn't pick if you're not familiar with this. Welsh celebrities, yeah. you may yeah. not right. always know who. You, you get a lot of there's a lot of a talk show host <laughs> called Terry Wogan who was ubiquitous on British television during the 1970s and 80s. Oh, thank God we have Gabe to tell oh, us that. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> always there for a Terry Wogan impression. I mean, the other thing I was curious to get your thoughts on, and this is almost, it's almost irrelevant, but I'm interested in it, is in this other, this other review. One of the best things I read on this was by David Denby in The New Yorker, and he called it a triumph of the lean British comic style over the maunder and mush of American bromance. And that really stuck in my head and struck me as at once like a totally tangential comparison. Like it's not American bromance is a different beast and it's usually focused on younger men and the sort of egos are interacting in a somewhat different way, but I still find it somewhat clarifying in that that some ways there's the basic appeal of a Seth Rogen Jonah Hill vehicle and that it's the comedic formula of two men of sort of roughly comparable sexual attractiveness, spending an hour peacocking and sparring and competing for an audience of hot women, but mostly really for each other. And in the process, they sort of lay bare the exact shape of their vulnerabilities and also their foundational love for one another. But I, but at the same time, this the franchise like, isn't really about friendship. It's about loneliness. It's about how like in the the redemptive thing at the end of the bromance movies is 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 friendship. But here, these men are fundamentally alone, and there's something like desolate about that. Yeah, and they they never they come together to spar superficially, but they never like get real with each other and break it down the way that the bros do. At right. some point, they have to break it down. They go off into the retreat into their corners, and in those movements, the movie becomes like Lost in Translation or somewhere those those Sofia Coppola right. movies where it's like this famous person facing their own loneliness and, and emptiness. Demons, right, exactly. But then when they come back together, it's nothing but light. 
for one thing, those American movies that you're talking about are about youth, right? Those are about young men full of potential, figuring out who they are and, and what they're going to do and be. And these are movies about late middle age and the sort of decline into senescence and about realizing that you won't have accomplished everything that you wanted to accomplish and that all of your success really doesn't mean very much against to, to sort of shore you up against the, the dying of the light. And uh, <laughs> right. it, it's not ultimately a comic premise no. it's a tragic and premise. to find it funny you need to be so tuned into the nooks and crannies of these guys personalities like it does not it completely resists you know pratfalls or even plot it just uh yeah i mean it's the it's a comedy that rewards close attention instead of glazed semi-consciousness well my other problem with this third in the series uh in addition to feeling it did not uh, hit its marks in other places that it has a very odd out of nowhere ending, which we won't talk about here, but we will talk about in our Slate Plus segment. Uh, so that's the trip to Spain and everyone should go see it. Or actually everyone should go see the trip and the trip to Italy and then decide if you would like to watch a somewhat lesser version of those two movies. Actually, everyone should go <laughs> to England and wait for reruns of the trip, the trip to Italy and the trip <laughs> to Spain to be shown on British television. Let's move on to our third topic, The Deuce, the new David Simon HBO show, a huge multi-million dollar 90-minute pilot about the, the sex industry in early 1970s New York City and Times Square, uh, with, launched with great fanfare. Is this the next Wire Laura. That does seem like the question at hand, doesn't it? I feel like there's one thing to ask yourself at the end of this show, and it's, is this the next wire? I love the deuce. The deuce is great. What a fun, terrifying, and despairing show to watch. <laughs> um, to be clear, we've only watched one episode. We watched the pilot, which is feature length. It's got a lot packed into it. Um, some critics have seen some other episodes, right. but but the pilot is all that's aired at the time that we are right. recording this, and, and so that you are listening it. to it. Yeah. Um. My short answer is kind of yes. Like, I, I mean, this is not a controversial. I'm framing this like I'm the first person to have thought of this. I really do think it's The Wire. I mean, I, it's it's the closest thing to The Wire that we've gotten since The Wire. I mean, if you squint at first, it almost looks like HBO's vinyl, which also took a bacchanalian approach to decadent 70s New York. I don't know if either of you guys have seen vinyl. It's terrible. Oh, it's awful. I couldn't it's watch. So I stopped bad. watching. It's so bad. And such a bummer because Cannavale can almost lift the tied but uh because he's so good but it's terrible and that is just i mean it's vacant the vi vinyl is nothing it's it's a, got a lot of the sort of um you know spirit of the deuce and, and obviously the the atmosphere the panoramic quality of it but it's it's just boring and dead inside and if so but over it, it doesn't take very long for the fundamental david simonness of the deuce to reveal itself and sort of the incredibly close journalistic attention he pays to the characters and to, and to piecing together the system around them. Like the scene that stuck out to me as the most Simon, Simonian, Simon-esque sort of early on in the first, in the pilot is that scene with the two pimps sitting in Port, Port Authority in the bus terminal and basically talking about establishing the rules of their world. And it's just like there's some Nixon references sprinkled in there and it's just like a real... Um, it's a, just such like a deft and interesting establishment of the of the of the system, the way the whole bureaucracy, the way the whole well, it's not really a bureaucracy in this case, but the way the whole um, universe works, like the the sort of the years in it. Um, and then there's that scene with Maggie Gyllenhaal and the I guess I should just explain exactly what this is. There's this one scene where Maggie Gyllenhaal plays this sort of um, weathered, seen it all prostitute who's like a really savvy businesswoman and refuses to have a pimp because she wants to bring home all the money herself. And there's this scene with where she, uh, you know, caters to a teenage birthday boy and he expresses some things end too quickly for his liking and he expresses some sort of incredulity that her job is, is so easy and that he that she he asks her to basically to have another go and he's like well that was so easy for you why don't we get to do it again and she gives him this incredibly uh she gives him this like practical breakdown of how prostitution works and make, uses an analogy to car salesmanship which is what this kid's dad does and it's just like so clear-eyed and so and it reminded me so much of the way Simon interjects sort of procedural details in The Wire. Um, yeah, I mean, in vinyl, the parts amounted to nothing but spectacle. If you hover above these characters, you get nothing but sort of pomp and and dazzle. But in The Deuce, it's uh, the system is so satisfying to put together. 
Yeah, you can see how over time, much like The Wire was in exploration of the drug trade, which was really in some ways about race, this could be an exploration of the sex work trade, and but it's really about gender. And the, and the first scene of the whole thing is a, a couple sitting at a bar, sort of talking, negotiating a little bit about, I think he's got a wife. And, and, you, and this is, it frames the entire thing as like, yes, this is going to be about sex work. This is going to be about lawlessness in New York in the early 1970s, but this is in some ways going to be about gender and gender dynamics. Right. And and I think David Simon has also talked about how this is going to be about capital and labor and exploring that in 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 one of the most like nakedly rapacious capitalistic um, realms you could find, which is sex work. I also really like the show. I'm also excited to see where it goes. I came away, I went into it with a question and the question was not answered for me by the pilot. And I, I it seems like the show is sort of setting itself up to answer the question over time. So I'm not criticizing the pilot for not resolving the whole thing. But a thing that I, this is just ignorance on my part, but a thing that I don't understand is what is the function of the pimp in, in the prostitution economy, like in, in this kind of streetwalker prostitution economy, right? There's, as Laura said, Maggie Gyllenhaal says, I don't need to have a pimp because I want to keep all the money for myself. And then there's another girl who says, yeah, I need to have a pimp. Otherwise I get lazy. Uh, which, uh, like, I understand that pimps sort of enforce their right to take a cut of the prostitute's earnings through violence and sometimes through drugs and sometimes through seduction. And we see all of those things happening. But the show seems to suggest, and that line of dialogue seems to suggest, that they have some other function. Or are they just parasites? And is this a metaphor for capitalism? And is the capitalist class just a parasite on labor? Is that where this is going? I just, I don't quite understand how it works. Like I this, thought that the, question was answered pretty effectively in that, well, Maggie Gyllenhaal even has a, a riff about how her job is hard because she doesn't have a pimp. She has to defend herself. She has to work harder. She, like the... It's a really it's a very difficult economy to in which to be a woman. You're vulnerable and you're lonely if you don't have someone protecting you. And so the pimps are these sort of manipulative, brutish enforcers who alternate sort of uh, brutality and tenderness in a way that's really uh, compelling and sort of sick to watch. When they're the muscle, if someone isn't going right. to pay or if someone beats up the sex worker that they can you know retaliate so there's a, there's a little of that but i think you know maggie gyllenhaal seemed to prove that not entirely necessary it's you know it's our, so i am here for everything that david simon does basically i loved generation kill which was his mini hbo miniseries about um uh, the iraq war I, I i loved um show me a hero oh, which about the yonkers housing Seth, uh, how do you think this compared to show me a hero <laughs> <laughs> the question on everyone's lips <laughs> well sort of will this I be mean, the new show me a hero it's not just the show me a hero i mean the bureau Bureaucracy in Show Me Hero is so boring, but I also feel like Show Me Hero bludgeoned us with its bureaucracy in a way that this show doesn't. But I'm just curious why, how you managed to like both of those Simon properties so, and in what respective ways. All of these, all of his shows are about the people on the ground, the you know the the seemingly unimportant regular people on the ground who are part of this massive system, this machinery that's grinding them up. Whether it's you know the Iraq War and 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 you know American imperialism abroad, and or whether it's Show Me a Hero, whether it's like you know government mandates about about housing and like and and this creates fights and it's about how the regular people on the ground deal with this and emotionally interpret this and battle with each other over this and they're but they're all part of this much larger system that doesn't care about them and that's what's happening again here with sex work and I think it's fascinating but it's very hard to judge because the real joy of The Wire wasn't just the, the, its great premise and exploring a world that maybe we hadn't seen that much of before, or at least not handled um, that delicately. But the real joy was the expansiveness over its seasons, how there are so many characters and and like, you know, the, these, these minor, minor characters will come back three seasons later and appear and you delight in their appearance. And there are these like longitudinal jokes that happen over the... And that to me was the great thing about that huge sprawling work of art and i i could imagine um this show doing that in this world it's such a richly imagined world my my only problem with it is i i kind of wish if it was if we we're going to have a great wonderful show about sex work that it was contemporary contemporary that it wasn't a period piece i would kind of like to know more about what's happening now uh with sex workers and pornography instead of then but you know minor complaint and and and, well, and i, don't I guess feel the, like the chaos and the edge of danger and wildness is sort of necessary to it's like part of the engine of the show 
Sure. And it's the visuals and the clothes right. are all a delight and the music is a delight. That's all true. I just mean in terms of and the, seeing what New York would have looked like, like what that part of New York, which is now fully like the most fully developed part right. of contemporary consumer capitalism right. in the right. universe at, at a time when it was not that at all, when it was uh, garbage bags. Yeah. <laughs> when it was like seedy and frightening. Um, it's sort of fascinating to see that and to imagine that being like 41st Street and Broadway. It's crazy. And they do the production does an incredible job of recreating that world, and like you, it, it feels real. Um, and you know, vinyl did the same thing; spent trillions of dollars oh. to do that, but there was nothing at its heart. Right. So that's the thing. thing. Oh, so just the thing about yeah. vinyl is that at its heart were platitudes about uh, real music and selling out, and that's what you got when you tried to take the bird's eye view. Nothing more than that. Just like the broadest and dumbest of strokes. A thing we haven't talked about is James Franco, who plays what seems to be one of the protagonists of the show, Vincent, who's a, a, a struggling sort of he's, – he's in the straight world. He's tending bar and he's having straight jobs and, and uh, he, his marriage falls apart and he, we see that he's about to get enmeshed in this world of the sex trade. But who also plays Vincent's uh, reckless gambling bro- twin brother, Frankie? And so we hear a lot about Frankie, and then at the end of the pilot, we get to see a scene in which Franco is playing both characters standing on either side of the bar. This is reflected in a mirror. This is going to be a big part of the show: is uh, James Franco playing two guys at once? What about that? (laughs) Can they really sustain that? What about that? I, for one, I couldn't watch that scene and not just be thinking, "Whoa, it's James Franco, and he's playing two guys at once." How do they do that? I mean, I know how they do that, but it was impossible for me to like get over the trickery involved. I liked how one guy had a bruise on his head yes, and they that's had to give how him you the, know they had to give him the <laughs> a laceration as his forehead early on so you could tell them apart I saw that kind of they also did a, there were a lot of TV tropes where it's like here comes the new sex worker the new prostitute on the scene so they can explain to her how it works yeah. or here's like the uh-huh. first time John the kid with the, with the birthday so she can like talk to him there was a lot of that but that's what happens in a pilot that's what happens early in the season uh, James Franco's dual performance better or worse than Ewan McGregor playing uh, two brothers uh, in Fargo Oh, I didn't see that season of Fargo. I didn't either. <laughs> we have nothing to say to that. You guys call yourself culture experts. Yeah, I'm not a culture editor anymore, so I have no shame. Well, I, for um, one, would like to see this series continue for 100 more seasons, you know, and the, and have the little who will be the snot boogie of of this show who you know who will be the well, minor character love to see d'angelo bark still make an appearance yeah and that's you know what, another thing to say about this is the, all the meaty wonderful roles for black actors that we don't get in so many other shows that we're going to get here which is which is great um whether it's fantastic that they're playing pimps and and sex workers maybe you know that's a well question. i've also heard that the female characters get much more interesting and that maggie gyllenhaal's roles deepens and strengthens over the course again i believe as a sort of matter of uh, policy that you can't judge that much based on a pilot, but this was a good pilot. Great pilot. Great pilot. <laughs> we all agree. <laughs> Listeners, if you have any thoughts about The Deuce or about early 1970s New York City grits, you can share them on the Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, we are on to endorsements. Gabe, what are you endorsing? All right, I have an endorsement that is kind of an early endorsement. If I were on this show every week, I would be saving this endorsement for a little while, but I'm not. This is my one shot at an endorsement, and I am going to use it on a forthcoming novel by the British novelist Alan Hollinghurst, the greatest uh, novelist currently living in my personal estimation. Uh, His next book uh, will be published soon in Britain, and I think uh, early next year by Knopf in the United States. It's called The Sparsholt Affair. Uh, if you are a Hollinghurst fan, I don't need, obviously, to convince you of, of the interest of this book, but I should say some of us felt that uh, his his previous book, The Strangest Child, he didn't quite get to grips with the uh, the form of a, a multi-generational saga and a sort of pa- uh, panoramic historical view of the 20th century. In The Sparshaw Affair, he revisits that form and I think gets it right this time. The focus is a little narrower. The characters are more sharply drawn. Uh, it, it, it takes the form of a series of discrete novellas. Uh, it's about, as are all of his books, uh, it's about gay men in England, but it's beautifully written in, in in his uh, prose, which is, I think, the best prose of anyone writing today. Um, look out for it when it comes out in the spring. It's The Sparshalt Affair by Alan Hollinghurst. All right. I loved Line of Beauty. I'll definitely have to check that out. Laura, what you got? Oh, this is a boring one because I'm basically going to pinpoint an object of recent cultural buzz and tell you that I endorse and confirm that buzz. It's also going to be a uh, I'm going to plug a future edition of the audio book club because this is the book we'll be talking about. But uh, Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. 
That is just a delightful novel. I recommend it so wholeheartedly. I know Gabe has already read it. Seth, if you haven't, you should check it out. It is essentially, it's just about four characters um, just getting to know, befriending and having affairs with each other. And it's an incredibly close and perceptive character study and also study of how of the sort of performance of social interactions having finished it so recently i just wanted to say that it's great and she's a really talented and a very young person and you should check out her book so i know that stephen metcalf endorsed walter becker last week but i'm going to take it one step further and i'm going to endorse a specific steely dan song and i think gabe and i would have happily made this entire uh, Culture Gab Fest about Steely Dan, where we just like named Steely Dan songs and kind of DJed and just like played a few clips of Steely Dan songs. We I mean, should do that for Slate Plus. We should just do a whole hour of us playing great Steely Dan records. Sold, Slate Plus listeners, get ready for th- for that. Laura, I know you also would love to speak about Steely Dan and your love for Steely Dan. I and, sure would. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh, I'll be so, there. Anyway, I'm uh, by way of honoring Walter Becker, who meant a lot to me, uh, like you know, through high school when I first discovered Steely Dan, and I, I you know, I, it's it's I'm very sad. I'm very broken up about his death, and so I'm going. Going to endorse, um, you know, you might expect me to endorse like an, an on-ramp to Steely Dan, like an accessible, easy Steely Dan song for people who haven't gotten into Steely Dan, like Laura, that they would, you know, might like and instantly be like, oh, I see the appeal, but I'm not going to do that. That would be the easy thing. I'm going to endorse like the least accessible Steely Dan song. The Steely Dan song you listen to, you're like, wait, why would anyone ever listen to Steely Dan? So I'm going to endorse Gaucho, which is from their, their the last of their string of studio albums uh, during their heyday, where they kind of went off the rails and became so Steely Dan. And that even people who had previously liked Steely Dan could no longer enjoy the music. It, it they would like do forty six takes for every drum track. Um, they would hire like the greatest studio musicians in the world, and then he, and like Mark Knopfler plays guitar, and they use like six seconds after he you know spent four days in the studio. It's 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 this exacting thing that was was so distilled that it no longer had any meaning, and yet I still love it. So Gaucho is the song, the title track. It sounds like disco. It sounds like something that like uh, you know if you saw like an aerobics clip from an early 80s sitcom it would be the backing track but if you get into it listen to the virtuosity of the musicianship listen to the the lyrics are classic silly dan which where it's this like first person tale and you don't really understand what's going on but there's some sort of disagreement between people and and one of them is wearing a um uh, one of them is a gaucho who is who is wearing a spangled poncho and elevator shoes it's 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 perfect steely dan and yet the worst steely dan at once and that is my endorsement Great song. (laughs) I would like to break in here to tell you about another great Slate podcast. The show we're talking about today is Amicus, Slate's legal podcast hosted by Slate's great legal correspondent, Dahlia Lithwick. It comes out every two weeks. You can hear it at slate.com slash amicus. Like the Supreme Court, it has recently come back from a hiatus. Unlike the Supreme Court, it is better than ever. It's about the law and about the nine Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of us. That's amicus at slate.com slash amicus or in your podcast app of choice. Laura and Gabe, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Listeners, we'll see you next time. It'll be uh, Julia and Dana and Steve. Uh, You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. This week's show was produced by Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can find an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Bennett and Gabriel Roth, I'm Seth Stevenson, and we'll see you soon. Just when I say, boy, we can't miss 